This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Okay. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books, a New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Elena Gartuburu, and today we have here Professor Rebecca Hecolon to talk about her new book, Channeling Knowledges, Water and Afro-Diasporic Spirits in Latinx and Caribbean Worlds, published by the University of Texas in 2023. Welcome, Rebecca. It's a pleasure having you here today. I'll introduce you to our audience. Thank you, Elena. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, Rebecca Hecolon is assistant professor in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese at Temple University in Philadelphia. She specializes in Afro-Latinx and Caribbean studies. Her work has appeared in Aslan, a journal of Chicano studies, Chicana Latino studies journal, Latino studies, and small acts, among others. Channeling Knowledges is her first book. Rebecca, in addition to this fascinating professional and academic biography, is there something you can share with our listeners so that they can get to know you a bit better? Sure. Um, something that I that I do think is pretty important um, in understanding even the, the book is that I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. And so having the experience of living on an island during my formative years really made me both conscious and sort of taking for granted the presence of water. Um, and I think that that's something that really allowed me to carry that question with me um, through my academic journeys. And so that seed was planted a very long time ago. <laughs> I think that happens to all of us who leave near water. It becomes something that is really intertwined in our lives and we really miss it or kind of notice its, its absence when we're not close to the sea or to large bodies of water. We could say maybe like a big river or a big lake. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so your book, uh, Channeling Knowledges, Water and Afro-Diasporic Sp- Spirits in Latinx and Caribbean Worlds, focuses on the role of water in upholding division through the imposition of geopolitical borders. In stark, con- in stark contrast to this, this divisive view, Afro-Diasporic religions conceive of water as a place of connection. It is where spiritual entities and ancestors reside and where knowledge awaits. Um, Departing from the premise that water encourages confluence through the sustainment of contradiction, Channeling Knowledges presents an interdisciplinary framework that combines methodologies from literary studies, anthropology, history, and religious studies to analyze the works of Latinx and Caribbean creators, such as Mayra Santos Febres, 
Rita Indiana, Gloria Evangelina Saldúa, and the Border of Lights Collective. The book traces how Latinx and Caribbean cultural production draws on systems of Afro-diasporic worship, like Haitian voodoo, La, Divis La 21 División, or Dominican voodoo, and Santeria Regla de Ocha, to channel the powers of water, both salty and sweet, in sustaining connections between past, present, and not yet imagined futures. This book presents fascinating research, and it is beautifully written. But tell us, how did the book come to be? Well, first of all, Eden, I really want to thank you again for inviting me and for reading and for engaging with my work. Um, honestly, I have been thinking about water for a really long time, um, starting, as I was saying, with just my, my very personal experiences in Puerto Rico, but also I remember, even though it's not always common for us as undergraduates to write a, a senior thesis, I ended up writing one on the Anglophone and Hispanophone Caribbean. And I already then was really sort of drawn to the symbolic or generative potential of water. And so I, I, I could start to trace it there. But then when I did my doctoral dissertation, I was very much um, thinking about water, but I was really focused on, on the sea, right? Because th this is what I had actually seen sort of taken up by critics and authors in my midst. But the one thing that I, that I really wanted to highlight that's a big difference between what I was doing when I was doing my doctoral dissertation and what ended up happening with channeling knowledges is that in my dissertation, I was really sort of not only focusing only on the sea, but also really only looking at water through a literary lens, right? So it was sort of like seeing it as a metaphor, but not really seeing it as a living, active body in and of itself. And so in order to really sort of expand my view, I had to take on uh, an interdisciplinary lens, right? And here, I also have to credit um, my field of Latinx studies because Latinx studies is inherently interdisciplinary, right? It doesn't matter if you are focused on literature or focused on art or focused on history. I think there is a real emphasis on the need to sort of read broadly um, because in many ways, I think it's a, about recognizing that this is one of many fields, as in all fields in ethnic studies, that have never sort of been traditionally taught. So you have to search for knowledges elsewhere. Um, and so this is sort of what led me to think really deeply about Afro-diasporic religions. And that's when everything kind of clicked for me and the project as it is right now came to be. And so this is one of the things that I really hope that makes a contribution, right? That maybe readers who are more trained in literary studies can gain um, an appreciation, right? Of how complex Afro-diasporic religions conceive of water, right? And how these sort of epistemological legacies are really critical to furthering our readings of texts. 
or on the other hand, right, readers who may not be as familiar with literature can see what literary authors have been doing and continue to do with um, these spiritual knowledges. Oh, and oh, and one more thing that I wanted to to add to that a little bit is also this sort of connection between the border and water, right? Because this was something that I also um, thought about much later as I kept doing research for the book. And here I really have to credit Ansaldua for opening the door for me because even though Borderlands um, was a text that I encountered early on in my research, I was always drawn to the fact that even though clearly, right, this is a text that is thinking really deeply about borders and the relationship between the U.S. and Mexico in particular, so these like really clear territorial spaces, there's a lot of water in this text, right? And I I didn't, I don't think I grasped the depth of that until I really, really started to focus on it. And so this also sort of helped me understand that by focusing on water, I could also question, you know, the limits not only of borders, but of course, borders also are linked with the nation state, right? And these sort of um, these divisions that then translate also going back to our academic training and our academic disciplines and the areas of specialization, etc. And so I'm I'm really hoping that putting the Caribbean and the Latinx world in conversation through water sort of disrupts a lot of those narratives that maybe have come to be more traditional or more common. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and also in your research, you talk a little bit, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but I, I think it makes sense to talk a, a little bit about this now. Um, you talk about other borders that are made through water, right? Um, you talk about the importance of kind of breaking that barrier between Latinx and Caribbean studies. And maybe this is just my personal experience, but it's also what I see a little bit out there in, in the, you know, in the research and, and the, the writing, the scholarship, let's say, that it's a, it, it's kind of hard when, when you when you come up with a project that bring those two worlds together, it's always looked upon as a little bit like, hmm, you know, maybe this is your modeling things or I, I don't know, you know. Um, yeah, no, I, I I think that's that's really a really important point that you're making, Elena, um, because and I, I say this a lot um, to my students, or at least I try to remind them, right, that disciplines discipline right? Like they are very, very clear about what we should and should not be doing, right? What counts as legible or valid as a, as a area of study and what is not, right? And I think that the, the corpus that readers will find in channeling knowledges is really invested in interrogating those sort of divides, right? Because that is another really like um, pivotal epistemological border 
that I'm pushing against in the book and and different areas and different disciplines will have different blind spots, right? Um because I think in one of one of your questions, and I know that we're we're kind of jumping around, but I think that's sort of the nature of the book too. As well. <laughs> um, you know, so thinking about Haiti, right? Haiti is very, very vis- visible, for example, in religious studies and anthropological studies because there's been a lot of work on Haitian voodoo and also Cuba, right, with Santeria de la de Ocha. But at the same time, there has not been as much attention to La Ventuna División or Dominican voodoo, right? And so this is one of the things that maybe has not been covered as much in those disciplines versus, for example, if we think about the field of Caribbean literature, there, there is a much more visible presence of the Dominican Republic and Cuba still there, but then there, in that sense, we don't talk about Haiti, right? Because then we're going into another language, right? So language is sort of used as the reason why this line gets drawn, right? And so one of the things that um, that I really try to emphasize in the book, right, is that in this sort of moment that we're in, where we really are trying to question to recover and to really emphasize, you know, the contributions of Black communities in the Americas, sort of sticking to these borders or this these divides is going to limit us, right? Hinder us. And water speaks so many languages. I think this is one of the things that I love about it, right? It also has like a visual currency, which is why there are artists also mentioned in the book. And beyond that, right, it has this very strong spiritual current, right, that runs through all of the texts and all of the um, materials that I'm covering in the book. And so I, I think this also goes back to even like a term like Latinx, right? Or Latinidad. There's been so much discussion about what Latinidad can or cannot do, who it brings in and who it excludes, right? And for me, and I know that I'm not alone in saying this, right? It's not really about throwing concepts away, but about really sort of putting them on, on the table, right? And saying, what have you done? What have you contributed? And where have you fallen short, right? And what can we do about this? And this is one of the the concepts that I really um, like that I've sort of gotten to become more familiar with, with writing the book is this notion of, and I'm going to say it in Spanish and then talk about it in English, but this notion of desbordar, right, of overflowing. But in Spanish, right, this notion of desbordar literally would translate to undoing borders, right? There's an undoing of these sort of limits and these divides. And by kind of flowing over them, like being this sort of excess or whatever we want to call it, we can suddenly then see sort of connections that were hindered or cut off literally through these divides, and I think that's one of the things that I am really hoping that the book contributes in terms of conversations, right? What other kinds of conversations can we have if 
we allow water to sort of overflow and take us in sort of these multiple directions that are many times unexpected or like you were saying, like, hmm, why are we going or why are we talking about this? Like, why not? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I think that's a lot of what this interdisciplinary uh, approach that you propose does, right? It breaks through those borders and it allows us to have a more complete or complex or even contradictory at times uh, notion of, of these ideas. It goes beyond ex what is expected. Um, but I want to introduce the book a little bit to our listeners and just letting them know that the book features four chapters. They are framed by a prologue and an epilogue. The prologue is titled Infusing the Sacred, the Liquid Knowledges of the Afro-Diasporic World. And it includes, well, the theoretical framework and analyzes the exhibition bloodlines by the Dominican Haitian American artist, Peter Leivaez, and its accompanying work. Um, the four chapters, respectively, discuss uh, Mayra Santos Febres and her book Boat, uh, of Poems, Boat People, Rita Indiana and her novel La Mucama de Ominculé. And the last two chapters feature uh, the Gloria Evangelina and Saldua archive and offers a rereading of her canonical borderlands. The book closes with the epilogue, Water and Light, the Bóveda as, as counter archive and deals with a vigil organized by the borders, the Border of Lights uh, collective at uh, the northwestern border between Haiti and the Dominican Republic to honor the victims of the 1937 massacre. And in the prologue, you introduce, you introduce the terminology that makes, makes up your research. You have talked a little bit uh, about this idea um, of desbordar and some other terms, but could you tell us a bit about other terms that you use or that you pull from, let's say, and um, how they help you dialogue with other contemporary scholars like Lorde Garcia Peña, for instance. Yeah, thank you for this question, um, Elena. It's I I really like that you focused on uh, Lorde Garcia Peña, right? Because in her book, uh, The Borders of Dominicanidad, she introduces this idea of bordering right um and this concept even though it's one of the many ideas that she's contributing in in the book it was really critical for me in terms of helping me understand borders as living spaces right that are yes existing on the physical plane right when we're thinking about border crossings for example like these sort of very localized and territorial spaces but also this notion of how the borders that sort of shape the physical world get enacted all across different spaces. And here, you know, one of the ideas that I remember that she's talking about, right, is this idea that borders are kind of imposed onto physical bodies, right? And in this sense, it really was very important in helping me understand how water also has this sort of like bordering imposed on top of it, right? Because if we think about it um, in terms of just the nature of water, in terms of its physical qualities, water is a very difficult thing to control, <laughs> right? Um, and so thinking about 
why would water then become sort of an ideal border? It's not really an ideal border, but it's a naturally occurring border, right? When we have, for example, rivers and, you know, two of the central rivers that I talk about in the book um, are the Rio Grande, Rio Bravo, right? On the US-Mexico border and the Rio de Jabón, Rio Masacre on the ADDR border, right? And so these are two rivers that function as borders but they also show how difficult and violent and unexpected it is when water gets sort of asked to do these things um and and so one of the one of the concepts that i that i talk about especially in relation to the rio grande rio bravo right is the idea of water as a rippling border Right. And by here, I'm really trying to emphasize the movement that, you know, borders are usually thought of as these sort of, let's say, static spaces that can thus then be sort of guarded and patrolled. But in regards to a rippling border, right, there's an inherent movement that's happening all the time. And so that then sort of really makes us question again, what are borders doing and how are they doing this? And if we're going to exert control over borders, what is the cost of that, right? And I think, you know, in discussion of the Rio Grande, Rio Bravo, we can see that the cost of that was a huge, like, ecological cost, right, of, like, creating a concrete channel to sort of, like, say this is where the water should run, right? And so that's a, one, one of the ways of visualizing that. Um, yeah. But also this idea that water always, I mean, borders and, and water borders, maybe more specifically, they are a, a site of uh, separation in a way, right? They, they mark two different spaces, but they're also a place of connection, a place that is permeable, but something that also permeates, right? Like when the border, when the, when the river overflows, it exceeds, right? And, and, so that is really interesting about the nature of 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 water and and what it does and its possibilities right like it is an agent and it is alive absolutely and you know i love that you that you picked up on that because i in in instances where i've talked about these ideas um especially about water as a border i usually see people light up because this concept, right, is I'm working in a particular space because it's the space that I have knowledge of. But clearly this resonates like across the globe because I've had people then mention, you know, bodies of water in Europe, what bodies of water in Asia, things that really make them think like, yes, you know, this sort of concept is really applicable. And I think this is this is one of the really valuable qualities of water is like it is part of the human experience. Um, and so in that sense, it's it really has a potential to to generate very wide-ranging conversations. Um, and with that in mind, I think, you know, one more concept that I wanted to to mention that I thought very deeply about as I was um, researching and writing the book is this idea of the Black Atlantic, right? That's been such a, such a central concept for Black studies on a global level, going back to this sort of like very um, far-reaching um concept and i 
I obviously recognize that this is a, a really important concept, but I also realize that, you know, what do we leave out when we use the concept of the Black Atlantic, right? Because how, again, going back to, you know, water as a border, where do we draw the line, right, of the Atlantic and the Pacific, for example? Where do we, where or how do we then emphasize like the Caribbean Sea? How or why do we then choose not to discuss the multiple rivers that actually lead into the sea, right? And in, in the book, one of the things that I mentioned at different points, right, is that this, that space of encounter between salty and sweet waters, right, where the, the river goes into the sea, those are really powerful spaces in Aphrodite's religions because something energetically is happening there. Right. And so what happens if maybe our conversations about water centered those moments of confluence rather than sort of trying to present something that's a little more neat. Right. So to speak. Yeah. And those spaces also speak of interconnection of um, I don't think the word I want to use right now is hybridity, but maybe of of mixing. Right. Like both waters get mixed and they produce something new. And those spaces hold like specific fauna and flora, et cetera, et cetera. So they, they are powerful spaces that we should take more into account. Um, and going with the power of water, uh, you also mentioned two key ideas about the organization of the book. On the one hand, you suggest the prologue and the epilogue are free-flowing, right? They are open. And on the other hand, the chapter organization is structured according to the bodies of water found in each text you analyze. Water runs and connects your research and marks your interest in creating knowledge that doesn't stagnate, that doesn't offer one single or one simple answer. How do these ideas come up in the book? Yeah, thank you for for noticing, right, these descriptions of the of the organization and the prologue and the epilogue. And, you know, the organization of the book for me was something that I really did my best to relinquish control of it. Because I, as as I state multiple times in the throughout the book, um, you know, water doesn't really follow chronological expectations or geographical ones, right? And so me trying to like clearly outline and structure the book just felt antithetical to just the very writing that I was doing. So I, I. It, it's impossible for me to say like how it came to be organized in this particular way. It's just what felt that needed to happen. But then, you know, as I was in the process of revi revising the book for publication and preparing it, um, that was one of the questions that came up with the through the editorial process. Like, you know, why, for example, why are you talking about a prologue and not an introduction, for example? And... I, I actually appreciated having the opportunity to think really deeply about this because there's, again, I am a first book author. And so I, I, I definitely want to emphasize that. But just like all of these different sort of milestones in the academic world, right, there's this notion that there is a formula, right? There are steps that you have to complete in order to get to a certain outcome, and I guess the formula for a book is like you have an introduction, you have a conclusion, and you have your chapters, 
right? And somehow this project just felt like that was stifling it. And so I was trying to think about more fluid ways to organize it, right? And and I, I really noted as I was writing how much water verbiage we use when we write yes (laughs) Um, you know it's it's amazing and it's like once you go into it you realize like you know water really has such a strong like epistemological charge for us even in ways that we don't always recognize right and I think language is one of those ways um but the I guess the the structure of the book what I'm hoping is that it shows that there are other kinds of formulas that could be used in order to maybe put different fields, different concepts and different ideas in conversation with each other. And to realize that those sort of like expectations that we have of a particular kind of resolution or a simplification of a concept or the idea of like, being the quote unquote expert in a field, like these are not things that have to be that way, right? We can approach them differently. And, you know, I remember one conversation with um, one of my colleagues who read a portion of the book, you know, we came up with this, um, I think he was asking me, so what does water do, right? How can I explain it? And honestly, my response was, well, I don't know how I can explain it because if I try to sort of latch on to water and, and hold it in my hand, I'm going to wind up with an empty hand. It's just going to flow right through my hand, right? I can't, I can't grasp it in that way. But what I can tell you is how it moves, where it takes us. Right. And so that sort of brings us back to the sort of free flow, free flowing and um, fluid organization of the book. Fantastic. I, I love it. I think it's really open and that it it allows us to think differently and to not what not want to set things. Yeah, to set things right. Just to think and to keep thinking and to consider that these ideas need to be reconsider, rethought, and not because they are wrong or incomplete, just because that's the way knowledge works, right? We, we need to be rethinking, rereading, rewriting all the time. Yes. yes. So I want to, to ask you one last question, and it's about the, the role of water and spirituality or religion in the book, right? Uh, if you can tell us a little bit about the role of both in the creation and transmission of knowledges, and particularly when it comes to Afro-diasporic knowledges, how do you apply these notions in the book? Yeah, this is such a such a pivotal question for the book. Um, and I know that we're running short on time, so I'll try to rein it in, <laughs> even though we're just saying it's so hard <laughs> to rein it in um, with the book. But one of the things that I realized very quickly when doing research on Aphrodite's religions is that water is never functioning only in one role, right? It's It has uh, value as a being, but it also is a tool and it is also a conduit, right, for example. And I think that one of the clearest moments where we can visualize this sort of power of water on all of these multiple levels, which are also occurring simultaneously, 
is thinking about the initiation ceremonies in Haitian Voodoo, in La Veintiuna División, and in Santería Regla de Ocha. And so that's why in the prologue, you'll find a pretty thorough discussion of key moments in these um, practices and these rituals. And that sort of sets the stage to read the poem, the book of poems, Boat People by Mayra Santos Febres and Rita Indiana's La Mucama de un Micunle, or Tentacle, as it's translated into English. Um, and sort of realizing that in each of these texts, the authors are actually offering a kind of literary initiation right, which I actually argue that it affects the what is happening in the text, but also has the potential to affect the readers, right, and sort of like really change or transform their understanding of water as we move along. And then when it comes to the art world with the work of Fidele Baez, you know, I really discuss how um, water helps to, to, dissolve and to reimagine geographical spaces and connections and thus sort of like connects personal and national and communal histories and so that sort of art of re art of recovery also then blends into my approach to Ansaldúas's work and her archive which is fascinating but immense and so I will say that I'm really looking forward to more people working on it and seeing what else we can glean from so much of her writing that was actually never published but for me like really answering that question you know why does Ansaldúa a writer that in academic spaces has been sort of portrayed as a Chicana as a Tejana as someone who is, has a very close relationship to Mesoamerican deities like Coyoshalki and Coatlicue, why would she invoke Jemaya at the beginning of Borderlands, right? That was a real important question that I had and one that has a lot to do, again, with this sort of exploration of Latinidad, right? Of the ties between indigenous and Afro-diasporic knowledges and histories and spiritualities. And I think what I found was really rich because it shows that, again, water allowed Ansaldua, right, to have complementary and even mutually nourishing relationships to multiple spiritual traditions. And this is something that's really in line with, again, this sort of like immense capacity to hold that water has. Right, because I do also talk about water as an archive, right? It's a archive, it's a conduit, it's doing all of these things, but it, it sustains them, you know, in a way that they don't need to be sort of resolved. Um, and one more idea is the idea of water as a place of memory, right? Which is really central to this sort of understanding of the visual that the Border of Lights organizes at the riverbanks of the Rio de Jabón, Rio Masacre as a way of not only sort of bringing to light historical events or offering alternative venues for justice, but also enacting healing, right? Because healing is something that also runs throughout the book and that is facilitated and in many times even predicated upon the availability and the functions of water. Mm -hmm. Thank you. 
Well, Rebecca, thank you for being here with us today. Um, I know we're coming to the end of our time, but before we go, I'd like I'd like to ask you to very briefly talk to us about any current or future projects you'd like to share. Thank you. Yeah, well, I'm still trying to assimilate the fact that channeling knowledge is done because <laughs> it's, you know, so many years you of work. You deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I will say is I will be working on a on a book chapter on Ansaldua for an upcoming collection. And that really sort of revisits her idea of the bridge, which has been such a key and um, aspect of building scholarship on Ansaldua but really trying to expand that notion and really also pointing to the fact that a bridge opens possibilities, but it is really up to us, you know, the, the people who are sort of picking up or traversing that bridge to decide like what directions we go in. Hmm. I look forward to reading it. Well, thank you, Rebecca. I wish you all the best with Channel Analogies and with this future project and all of the future projects you'll have. Thanks again for being here with us today for this episode. I really, really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for listening to New Books, a New Books Network podcast. Thank you. 